My uh, my wife is in Chicago for for a few days visiting with our with our daughter and our grandchild. And uh, one of the because when she comes out uh, with me on Sundays, she usually attends early church and usually unsolicited unsolicited uh, she will pull me aside after first service and she will say needs help needs attention and I will say Carol Ann well okay just tell me and one of the things that she says to me she says can't you lighten up a little and and I have some lame excuse about why I can or why I can't. That's that's really so. Anyway, I wanted to tell you quickly. So uh, this morning, uh, where's my friend Neri? Is she here? Okay, nevertheless. So she uh, she she walked by my office this morning and introduced herself, which I had met her before, but she was really gracious. And uh, I said, are you going to church? She said, yes. I said, are you going to both services? She said, yes. And so she was at early church. And I said, Neri, could you do me a favor then? Uh, if uh, the sermon and what we do together in worship doesn't quite connect, would you be kind enough to tell me after church what we might do different? And she did. <laughs> She came up to me after uh, at coffee just a few minutes ago, and she said, uh, Barry, do you think you could tell a joke or something and lighten up a little? <laughs> I said, Neri, I am so bad at telling jokes. Can you find me one? And she did. So Neri arrived a few minutes ago and brought Katie along with her. And she says, Katie has a joke. And I invited Katie to come tell the joke, but she's in Sunday school. Here's the joke. She said, it's a Halloween joke. See how I have to write these down. I'm so bad at this. What did the waiter say when he served the skeleton's food? What did the waiter say when he served the skeleton's food? Bon appetit. <laughs> Was it my joke? Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your warmth, your hospitality, and uh, your your gracious uh, uh, welcome to to Carol Ann and me over over these weeks. It's a it's a joy to be with you, and it is uh, 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 my privilege to share Sunday mornings. And to be able to explore with you the book of James, I must tell you that when uh, on a uh, it was a, a Thursday afternoon in August when it appeared that I was going to be able to to come out and and be with you at Christ Church, uh, Chris Lyons came over to my house and uh, Chris and I met met my office. We were were sitting upstairs talking, and he said, "Barry, he said." What do you think about what do we want to do between now and Thanksgiving? What do we want to study? What's going to be our theme? And I said, well, I had these ideas. And Chris kind of listened. He listened. And he says, what do you think about doing the book of James? And uh, this was Chris's low level of enthusiasm, I, I discovered. So I said, you know, I hadn't really occurred to me, Chris. Uh, so anyway, you noted his enthusiasm a little bit earlier, and he, I really must acknowledge, he was responsible for persuading me and for helping me to open up a chapter of the uh, a book of the Bible, which I really had not spent a great deal of time reading over uh, in the years past. And it's been... Uh, it's been very, very revealing and very helpful to me, given the kind of culture in which we live 
and the virtual array of challenges that we who are in, at least in the United States, a shrinking uh, minority of the religious population. Uh, the framework for us to address and to engage the world in a way that has some balance and some perspective and I hope a great deal of pur purpose and meaning. Remember then that James, when he wrote this letter, was writing to a group of people. They weren't exactly exiles, but they were away from and not connected physically to their own faith community. They were dispersed through the Mediterranean world. And they were people who were first-generation believers, having come recently to faith in Jesus. But now they had left Jerusalem, or the word had been carried to them. And so in many ways they were, as we are, people with a set of values and faith and a commitment to those values and to a person, the risen Jesus, in a culture that simply did not share those values nor honor them. You remember over the past few weeks, Pastor Chris introduced the book to us with the idea that James addresses in chapter 1, perseverance. The second week, the topic that James addressed, again, following part of chapter 1 and 2, was the issue, how do we face trials and temptations? The issue that was addressed last week in the reading for, for last Sunday was the topic of favoritism. What happens and how destructive can favoritism be when we demonstrate that or even within the church when we engage in it? And today, that question that James is leading us out toward looking at and understanding and addressing and recognizing in the church and in our lives as God's people is the tension between faith and belief. Now, that tension is not found just in the Bible. It's found in the world. I told this, mentioned this at, at early church, but now I have the, the proper facts. When Tug McGraw walked off the mound in 1980, having won the World Series against all odds because the Philadelphia Phillies were not expected to win. When he walked off the mound and, have, and struck out the last batter, was in the final game of the World Series against the Kansas City Royals. He was asked, how did you do this? By the first band of reporters. Does any of you remember his words? You gotta believe. That's what he said, you got to believe. That became kind of a slogan, and I hadn't heard it for many years. But I'm starting to hear it again now around World Series time. you got to believe. In the late 80s or early 90s, it was indeed, again, a sports enterprise that gave us the other side of what success, at least in the athletic world, meant. And this time, it wasn't about belief. It was rather about doing. And our friends down the street figured that out. Just do it. But what about belief? Is it doing or is it believing? Do you believe what Tug McGraw said or do you believe what one of the biggest and most successful athletic corporations in the world has to say about that?
the tensions will likely always be there. And for those of us who are in the faith community, hear again the words of James, who writes to those people who were dispersed and is writing to us and encouraging us with similar words. However, James comes from that side of the spectrum, which says you need to be doing it, not just believing it. So why would he have encouraged that kind of action? Here's a couple of ideas. To declare oneself in the first century to be a person of faith was highly dangerous. It was risky. And there was a group of people, a whole population of folks, who said this whole idea that Jesus talks about of eternal life, of forgiveness of sins, of living with purpose, with freedom, with, uh, uh, with a great deal of enthusiasm, that is such an attractive message that we've not heard before. We want to be connected to the people who have those values. And they declared themselves transitioning from the Jewish faith into Christianity until they learned this until they learned that oh by the way you are expected not only to believe you are expected to engage you're expected to behave you are expected to do and because that was risky many of them backed away James knew that and so he writes to them, wherever they are, and says this, this relentless emphasis on doing. And his position was that unless one is willing to engage in behaviors, in choices, in decisions, in actions in, that reflect who I am as a child of God, as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, there is really no value in silent, silent belief. My friend's name is Radislav Kapil. I met him in 1987. He was the lead pianist for a touring Swedish concert choir. They were visiting in the U.S. for about three months. And while the group was a Swedish choir from Stockholm, I found out when he arrived at, to do the concert that, uh, that was held at the congregation I was then serving, that he himself was uh, uh, from what was then Czechoslovakia. And he also was the lead pianist, the, the, the uh, first chair, the pianist, for the Prague Symphony. And he was traveling with his Swedish choir, number one, because he was invited by the Swedes. And number two, he was able to get a visa to exit Czechoslovakia, which was then, in those years, under the control of the Soviet Union and was a communist, uh, totalitarian, uh, uh, controlled government. I asked him, how, how did you get a visa? Aren't they afraid you won't come back? And he said, I can travel any place I want because they, they must know that I'll come back. I will come back because they won't let my family leave. So I'll be back, and they let me go because I'm a good ambassador for their despicable regime. Those were his words. 
When I first met him in the spring of 1987, I, I, I said, uh, and it just was happenstance, that Carol Ann and I were planning a trip to Prague that summer. And we were, we were, we were going to travel to Prague, and I said, could we meet you in the city? I'll contact you, and we'd like to take you to dinner. We'd like you to be our guest for dinner someplace. And he said, absolutely. He gave us his name, gave us a phone number. And when we arrived in the city, we got settled in our hotel, and, and we called him. But when I called, and he spoke very good English, uh, when I called him, he, he seemed gruff. He seemed very abrupt. And I said, can we meet you at a restaurant? And he said, oh, never, no. And he said, uh, tomorrow, uh, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, he said, walk out your hotel and go down, walk down Venceslas Square, go to the metro station that's at the bottom of the plaza, and take the escalator down to the first level, and there's a store right there, meet me in front of the store, which we did, we met him, and he said, oh, by the way, do not talk to me. Just greet me and don't say anything else, and then I'm going to take off walking, follow me, which we did. So it was another subway ride, getting off, going up, going down, someplace in the city of Prague. We walked through uh, uh, back streets, and it was a rainy, rainy afternoon. And uh, it wasn't terribly cold, it was in July, but it was humid and sticky and wet and uh, very, in many ways, unpleasant. We were walking down a very, very small alleyway, and we walked past a doorway on our left, and he said, oh, this way. He motioned us back. It was unmarked, totally unmarked. And we went into a, a room that was virtually the size of this, of this space. It was at, at least this large, if not larger. And it was filled with people. They were drinking beer, having coffee, eating dessert, having lunch, and the, the din, the noise was overwhelming. And he said, now we can talk. What I learned was that this was a it was a it was a pub, but it had no sign on the front, and it was the only people who well probably the, the government knew, but the only people who could get in, or who would be welcomed were people who were Christians, and he said that this is a safe place we can talk here, and so he began to talk with us about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus in a culture that was clearly hostile, and he talked about probably not even knowing it, the book of James. Because, he said, it's easy to be a silent believer in Czechoslovakia in 1987. It's easy to be a silent believer. Because one can retreat into one's faith, into one's personal space, into one's devotional location. Nobody will ever, ever know if you happen to be a believer. However, he said, if you begin to act as if you believe in Jesus, trust Jesus, and do what Jesus asked, know that you will be in trouble. And it will happen this way. He said, the secretaries will report you. And we said, secretaries? And he said, yes, they're the people who keep track of those things. And I said, well, wh what are they? And he, we, the, he didn't have the English word, spies. Because the spies, the secretaries that he called them, would have infiltrated every strata of social, economic, religious, and political life 
And whenever a person of faith would begin to do anything, do anything that looked like trouble, they got reported. Now, they weren't hauled off to jail, only in the most extreme of circumstances. This is what happened to them. Radoslav told me, my son will probably never be able to attend the university. My wife will never get a promotion. That was the penalty. He said, that's why I don't talk on the phone. That's why I bring you to a place like this. Because being, and he felt compelled, felt compelled to do what he could to protect his family. And that, and he was in a very privileged position as the pianist for the Prague Symphony. But his point made such an impression. It's easy, he said, to be a silent believer. And whenever, whenever one's faith becomes evident by acts of charity, of compassion, then I will be in trouble. The government he knew, and which we all know, the government was deathly afraid that these groups of people, when they no longer would keep silence, would do several horrendously, horrendously dangerous things. Number one, they would read the Bible. Number two, they would gather in communities. Number three, they would serve the oppressed, the homeless, and number four, the most dangerous population that they would try to have contact with were the political prisoners. Because if they ever could reach the prisoners, the prisoners would tell the Christians what was going on in the prisons. And there would be perhaps rebelliousness, perhaps insurrection. Little did we know in 1987 that the system was collapsing from the inside and it would be only two more years when it would collapse into itself. On one day of our visit, my friend Radoslav said, why didn't you... No, I had said to him, because I'd made arrangements before we left the U.S., that I wanted to meet and asked to meet with the leader of the church in the city. And he looked at me kind of funny when I said, can, can you arrange that meeting? And he said, yeah, I suppose if you want to. That's exactly how it sounded. So what we found out when we met with the church leaders was that they sold out. They sold out. They got money from the state to keep the churches open, but the agreement was this. They would make no noise, and they wouldn't do anything. So they were very well established, very well established, and could do so. I tell you the story because it's the story of the book of James, and it's exactly what James is writing about. He encourages this Jewish Christian community dispersed and says to them, if you want to remain faithful to the promises that have sustained you to this moment in your life, don't, don't just be a silent follower of Jesus. Do not just be a silent believer. Do something. Action. And his language that, that you, uh, that you uh, uh, saw on the, on the screen in, in, in the text today is compelling. It's right there. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. He's pretty forthright, isn't he, about this, about his, the, his passion behind that. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith 
without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. The balance is this. You can express it in either way. Is faith balanced by deeds? Or are deeds balanced by faith? It's a chicken and egg, isn't it? I'm not sure. James has an idea that faith must be balanced by the compelling nature of deeds and by what it is that we indeed are willing to do. So the translation of faith into action is what he's asking for. I have a picture of an organizational chart that's up on the uh, that will be up on the screen shortly. It's in the in the front room, and it's a, a kind of a teaching device that I want to be uh, to using eventually with the church council. This is. Uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's come, from, come from a book written by a, by a pastor that it's very helpful. But the, the, the fact is that it's still an organizational strategic action chart. That's exactly what it is. Sometimes that's what we need to move from that concept of faith into action. But that's only one way. There's another slide right behind it. It looks like this. That's the way James would have it. Just go ahead and do it. Little regard for consequences, profound reliance, and deep commitment to one's faith and to one's practices. No retreating, no backing away, no apologies. One can just do it. Is it a Tug McGraw moment? You've got to believe. Or is it a Nike moment? Just do it. The immense gift the immense gift given us in the faith community is that we get to shape our own pathway through that. If I were to ask, and I won't, if I were to ask you to raise your hand, are you a faith person? Is that your initiation point? Or are you a doing person? I don't know what the breakout would be, but I, I'm almost confident that everybody here would be able to land in one of those two places and say, Barry, that's where... I start one of those two locations. The possibility is that when faith goes quiet, that it's not much heard from anymore. But the other side of it is that sometimes too much activity, too much engagement, too much busyness can sound like this. I never thought I'd be living this way, she said. Somehow I imagined that life would be simpler. She's reached 40, and she thinks that she should have her life together by now. But things are just not right. Too few evenings include nourishing suppers shared with loved ones. Too many evenings are given over to the demands of paid work or housework or loss to worry or exhaustion. Her closest friends are spread across several time zones. The old neighbors that she gave her house keys to have moved away, and she really hasn't had time to meet the new ones. She finds community here and there, she volunteers to help out as she can, but she's wary about getting too involved. She's wary about getting too involved. This is what she knows. Showing up at a PTA meeting, she's learned, 
probably means getting stuck with a fundraising assignment. So increasingly, she stays away. In spite of her intense concern about her children and all the others, she doesn't feel right about this. And she says again, this is not how I intended to live my life. Turning from one task to the next. In 1967, the writer's name was Charles Hummel. He wrote a book, a pamphlet, 40 pages. You can get it on Amazon. Actually, they probably don't want to ship you one. You have to buy five of them at a time. But it's worth having and it's worth giving away the title, The Tyranny of the Urgent. The Tyranny of the Urgent. And in this small pamphlet, he's a man of great faith. He talks about how we this is in the 60s, have moved into a place in our world that makes everything seem urgent. Everything. He blames one single device for layering a sense of urgency on us in our lives. One device. He says if we didn't have this, we wouldn't have these problems. The device, telephone. Telephone. I don't know whether Charles Hummel is alive or not. But talk about layering of devices. Let's do a little confession here. This is silent confession. You can display if you wish. Have you ever texted at the table? Have you ever said to, have you ever said words like this? Honey, just let me check my email first. Have you interrupted a conversation to see who it is that's calling you? You know the drill. Every one of those moments at the moment seemed urgent, didn't it? You know what Charles Hummel says. You were tyrannized. You were tyrannized by all of that. That's what this woman, that woman that wrote that lovely paragraph was absolutely saying. Take a look at this slide. You get to fill in the blanks on this one. Has this ever happened to you? Showing up at a church, feeling church? Showing up at a church meeting probably means getting stuck with home. <laughs> you came to church this morning? Cleaning bathrooms is part of the deal? You probably went to a church meeting fearing. It probably means getting stuck with, I know the one task in church life. Apart, cleaning toilets is easy compared to the one I'm going to mention to you. You know what that one is? Stewardship committee chairperson. <laughs> Stewardship committee chairperson. If you don't know what that person does, that's the person who gets to organize the activities that ask people for money. That is the quickest way, the quickest way to create enemies. Showing up at a church meeting 
probably means getting stuck with an assignment I may not like. And I do it because, number one, somebody has to, and number two, I feel guilty if it doesn't get done. Number three, unspoken, I end up feeling resentful because nobody else will do it. The words from this story. That's the downside. That's the downside. The tyranny of the urgent is what James was talking about. He doesn't exactly address it, but it's right behind his words. And we know that from experience. And aren't there moments in your lives when being a quiet and silent Christian just has an immense amount of appeal? You come to church, you worship, you pray, you leave. It sounds so appealing. And then along comes James, who would effectively say, just do it. Just do it. Both James and St. Paul, who were on clearly different places about faith and action. St. Paul, his great words in Romans and in Galatians had to do with justification by grace through faith alone. Works were of no value. The Lutheran Reformation, which actually began 493 years ago today in Wittenberg, Martin Luther was a disciple of St. Paul, saying faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, justification by grace through faith. That's where St. Paul was. You know by now where James was, and his slogan was, you know, faith, that's good, take the faith, but just get it done, just do it. It was a Tug McGraw moment, you got to believe, over against a Nike moment, just do it. The joy, I hope, for you and with you on this journey of faith that we're embarking is the privilege of walking and deciding where on in that space where we'll begin and where we will end. I told Pastor Chris I'm going to meet him down downtown this evening uh, to do hot chocolate. So think about that. Is serving hot chocolate to homeless and incredibly uh, needy people down on the Portland waterfront this, uh, this evening. Is that generated by faith? Or is it generated by just do it? I don't know. What I do know is that there's a place there where all of us can meet. And where in that spectrum, each of us can find a way to express Perhaps it will be a retreat into oneself. Perhaps it will be a retreat down to the waterfront or faith cafe or some other adventure or some other activity that gives us energy and gives us a place from which we'll be able to start. Let me close with these words. These are Mother Teresa's words, and here's a woman whose life was dedicated to a profound and deep faith and to a compelling sense of readiness to action. These are her words. Love begins at home 
And it is not how much we do, but how much love we put into that action. Once more. Love begins at home. And it is not how much we do, but how much love we put into that action. Deeds balanced by faith, or faith balanced by deeds. Tug McGraw, you got to just believe, or Nike, just do it. The adventure is finding out where we land in those places. Would you join me in prayer? Almighty and loving God, doing or believing, believing or doing, sometimes it's confusing until we decide, until we discover that really what matters most is listening to you. And discovering that at some moments we're called to decisive action, at other moments we're called to intense personal reflection, repentance. We're always called to faithfulness. And we give you thanks, Lord, that this is not a one-size-fits-all faith that you've brought us into. It's a faith in which you give us immense freedom and latitude to move around and to explore and to experiment. And when we fail, we're forgiven. And when we don't, you're still there for us. Faith alone or deeds alone, Lord, help us find our way. But above all, help us always remain faithful. And that's why we offer and ask this prayer and lift this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.